Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Thank you for your patience during my absence, but we are back. Now lay back, close your eyes, and let me read you to sleep. And now, on with our story time. At last, the ghouls brought their companion to a halt, and feeling above him, Carter realized the great stone trapdoor was reached at last. To open so vast a thing completely was not to be thought of, but the ghouls hoped to get it up just enough to slip the gravestone under as a prop and permit Carter to escape through the crack they themselves planned to descend again and return through the city of the Googs, since their elusiveness was great, and they did not know the way overland to spectral Sarkomand with its lion-guarded gate to the abyss. Mighty was the straining of those three ghouls at the stone of the door above them, and Carter helped push with as much strength as he had. They judged the edge next to the top of the staircase to be the right one, and to this they bent all the force of their disreputably nourished muscles. After a few moments, a crack of light appeared, and Carter, to whom that task had been entrusted, slipped the end of the old gravestone in the aperture. There now ensued a mighty heaving. But progress was very slow, and they had, of course, to return to their first position every time they failed. The slab would not prop the portal open. Suddenly, their desperation was magnified a thousandfold by a sound on the steps below them. It was only the thumping and rattling of the slain ghast's hoofed body as it rolled down to lower levels. But of all the possible causes of that body's dislodgement and rolling, none was in the least reassuring. Therefore, knowing the way of Googs, the ghouls set to with something of a frenzy, and in a surprisingly short time had the door so high that they were able to hold it still whilst Carter turned the slab and left a generous opening. They now helped Carter through, letting him climb up to their rubberish shoulders, and later guiding his feet as he clutched the blessed soil of the upper dreamland outside. Another second, and they were through themselves, knocking away the gravestone and closing the great trap door, while a panting became audible beneath. Because of the Great One's curse, no Goog might ever emerge from that portal. So with a deep relief and a sense of repose, Carter lay quietly on the thick, grotesque fungi of the enchanted wood, while his guide squatted near in the manner that ghouls rest. Weird as was that enchanted wood, through which he had fared so long, it was verily a haven, and a delight after the gulps he had now left behind there was no living denizen about, 
for Zugs shunned the mysterious door in fear, and Carter at once consulted with his ghouls about their future course. To return through the tower, they no longer dared, and the waking world did not appeal to them. They learned that they must pass the priests, Noshed and Kamantha, in the Cavern of Flame. So at length, they decided to return through Sarcomont and its Gate of the Abyss. Though, of how to get there, they knew nothing. Carter recalled that it lies in the valley below Lang, and recalled likewise that he had seen in Dilathleen a sinister, slant-eyed old merchant reputed to trade on Lang. Therefore, he advised the ghouls to seek out Dilathleen, crossing the fields to near and the sky, and follow the river to its mouth. This they at once resolved to do, and lost no time in loping off, since the thickening of the dusk promised a full night ahead for travel. Carter shook the paws of those repulsive beasts, thanking them for their help, and sending his gratitude to the beast which was once Pikmin. But he could not help sighing with pleasure when they left. For a ghoul is a ghoul, and at best, an unpleasant companion for man. After that, Carter sought a forest pool and cleansed himself of the mud of nether earth thereupon reassuming the clothes he had so carefully carried. It was now night in that redoubtable wood of monstrous trees. But, because of the phosphorescence, one might travel as well as by day. Wherefore, Carter set out upon the well-known route toward Silophias and Uthnargai, beyond the Tenarian hills. And as he went, he thought of the zebra he had left tethered to an ash tree on Nagranic in faraway Oriop so many eons ago. He wondered if any lava gatherer had fed and released it. He wondered, too, if he would ever return to Baharna and pay for the zebra that was slain by night in those ancient ruins by Yath's shore, and if the old tavern keeper would remember him. Such were the thoughts that came to him in the air of the regained Upper Dreamland. But presently, his progress was halted by a sound from a very large hollow tree. He had avoided the great circle of stones, since he did not care to speak with Zeus just now. But it appeared from the singular fluttering in that huge tree that important councils were in session elsewhere. Upon drawing nearer, he made out the accents of a tense and heated discussion, and before long, became conscious of matters which he viewed with the greatest concern. For a war on the cats was under debate in that sovereign assembly of Zugs. It all came from the loss of the party which had sneaked after Carter to Ulthar, and which the cats had justly punished for unsuitable intentions. The matter had long wrinkled, and now, or within at least a month, the marshaled Zugs were about to strike the whole feline tribe in a series of surprise attacks, taking individual cats, or groups of cats unawares, and giving not even the myriad cats of Ulthar a proper chance to drill 
immobilize. This was the plan of the Zoogs. Carter saw that he must foil it before leaving on his mighty quest. Very quietly, therefore, did Randolph Carter steal to the edge of the wood and send the cry of the cat over the starlit fields. A great grimalkin in a nearby cottage took up the burden and relayed it across leagues of rolling meadow to warriors large and small, black, gray, tiger, white, yellow, mixed. It echoed through near and beyond the sky, even into Ulthar. And Ulthar's numerous cats called in chorus and fell into a line of march. And it was fortunate that the moon was not up, so that all the cats were on earth. Swiftly, silently leaping, they sprang from every hearth and housetop and poured in a great furry sea across the plains to the edge of the wood. Carter was there to greet them, and the sight of shapely, wholesome cats was indeed good for his eyes after the things he had seen and walked with in the abyss. He was glad to see his venerable friend and one-time rescuer at the head of Ulthar's detachment, a collar of rank around his sleek neck, whiskers bristling at a martial angle. Better still, as a sub-lieutenant in that army was a brisk young fellow who proved to be none other than the little kitten at the inn, whom Carter had given a saucer of rich cream on that long-vanished morning in Ulthar. He was a strapping and promising cat now, and purred as he shook hands with his friend. His grandfather said he was doing very well in the army, and that he might well expect a captaincy after one more campaign. Carter now outlined the peril of the cat tribe, and was rewarded by deep-throated purrs of gratitude from all sides. Consulting with the generals, he prepared a plan of instant action which involved marching at once upon the Zug Council and other known strongholds of Zugs, forestalling their surprise attacks and forcing them to terms before the mobilization of their army of invasion. Thereupon, without a moment's loss, that great ocean of cats flooded the enchanted wood and surged around the council tree in the great stone circle. Flutterings rose to panic pitch as the enemy saw the newcomers, and there was very little resistance among the furtive and curious brown zoogs. They saw that they were beaten in advance, and turned from thoughts of vengeance to thoughts of present self-preservation. Half the cats now seated themselves in a circular formation with the captured zoogs in the center. They left open a lane down which were marched the additional captives, rounded up by the other cats in other parts of the wood. Terms were discussed at length, Carter acting as interpreter, and it was decided that Carter, acting as interpreter, that the Zoogs might remain a free tribe on condition of rendering to the cats a large annual tribute of grouse, quail, and pheasants from the less fabulous parts of the forest. Twelve young Zoogs of noble families were taken as hostages to be kept at the Temple of the Cats at Ulthar, 
and the victors made it plain that any disappearances of cats on the borders of the Zug domain would be followed by consequence highly disastrous to Zugs. These matters disposed of, the assembled cats broke ranks and permitted the Zugs to slink off one by one to their receptive homes, which they hastened to do with many a sullen, backward glance. The old cat general now offered Carter an escort through the forest to whatever border he wished to reach, deeming it likely that the Zugs would harbor dire resentment against him for the frustration of their warlike enterprise. This offer he welcomed with gratitude, not only for the safety it afforded, but because he liked the graceful companionship of cats. So in the midst of a pleasant and playful regiment, relaxed after the successful performance of its duty, Randolph Carter walked with dignity through that enchanted and phosphorescent wood of titan trees, talking of his quest with the old general and his grandson, whilst others of the band indulged in fantastic gambols or chased fallen leaves that the wind drove among the fungi on the primeval floor. And the old cat said that he had heard much of unknown Gadath in the cold waste, but he did not know where it was. As for the marvelous Sunset City, he had not even heard of that, but would gladly relate to Carter anything he might later learn. He gave the seeker some passwords of great value among the cats of Dreamland, and commended him especially to the old chief of cats in Celephiace, whither he was bound. That old cat, already slightly known to Carter, was a dignified Maltese, and would prove highly influential in any transaction. It was dawn when they came to the proper edge of the wood, and Carter bade his friends a reluctant farewell. The young sub-lieutenant he had met as a small kitten would have followed him had not the old general forbidden it. But that austere patriarch insisted that the path of duty lay with the tribe and the army. So Carter set out alone over the golden fields, stretching mysteriously beside a willow-fringed river, and the cats went back into the wood. Well did the traveler know those garden lands that lie betwixt the wood and the Cenarian Sea, and blithely did he follow the singing river Okronos that marks his course. The sun rose higher over gentle slopes of grove and lawn, and heightened the colors of a thousand flowers that starred each knoll and dingle. A blessed haze lies upon all this region, wherein is held a little more of the sunlight than other places hold, and a little more of the summer's humming music of birds and bees. So men may walk through it as though a fairy place, and feel greater joy and wonder than they ever afterward remember. By noon, Carter reached the jasper terraces of Kirin, which slope down to the river's edge and bear that temple of loveliness wherein the king of Ilikvad comes out from his far realm in the twilight sea. Only once a year, in a golden palanquin 
to pray to the god of Ukronos, who sang to him in youth when he dwelt in a cottage by its banks. All of Jasper is that temple, and covering an acre of ground with its walls and courts, its seven pinnacled towers, and its inner shrine where the river enters through hidden channels, and the god sings softly in the night. Many times, the moon hears strange music as it shines on those courts and terraces and pinnacles. But whether that music be the song of the god or the chant of the cryptical priests, none but the king of Ilikvad may say. For he has entered the temple or seen the priests. Now, in the drowsiness of day, Metcarvin and Delicate Fane was silent, and Carter heard only the murmur of the great stream and the hum of the birds and bees as he walked onward under an enchanted sun. All that afternoon, the pilgrim wandered on through perfumed meadows and in the lee of gentle riverward hills bearing peaceful thatched cottages and the shrines of amiable gods Carvin from Jasper and Chrysobero. Sometimes he walked close to the bank of Ukronos and whistled to the sprite and iridescent fish of that crystal stream. At other times he paused amidst the whispering rushes and gazed at the great dark wood on the farther side, whose trees came down clear to the water's edge. In former dreams, he had seen quaint, lumbering bubbles come slyly out of that wood to drink. But now, he could not glimpse any. Once in a while, he paused to watch a carnivorous fish catching a fishing bird, which it lured to the water by showing its tempting scales in the sun. And, grasped by the beak with its enormous mouth as the winged hunter sought to dart down upon it. Toward evening, he mounted a low, grassy rise, and saw before him flaming in the sunset the thousand gilded spires of Thrawn. Lofty beyond belief are the alabaster walls of that incredible city, sloping inward toward the top, and wrought in one solid piece by what means no man knows, for they are more ancient than memory. Yet, lofty as they are with their hundred gates and two hundred turrets, the clustered towers within, all white beneath their golden spires, are loftier still, so that men on the plain can see them soaring in the sky, sometimes shining clear, sometimes caught at the top in tangles of cloud and mist, and sometimes clouded lower down, with their utmost pinnacles blazing free above the vapors. And where Thrawn's gates open on the river are great wharves of marble, with ornate galleons of fragrant cedar and calamander, riding gently at anchor, and strange bearded sailors sitting on casks and bales, the hieroglyphs of far places. Landward, beyond the walls, lies the farm country, where small white cottages dream between little hills and narrow roads with many stone bridges wind gracefully among streams and gardens. Down through this verdant land, Carter walked at evening, 
and saw twilight float up from the river to the marvelous golden spires of Thrawn. And just at the hour of dusk, he came to the southern gate and was stopped by a red-robed sentry until he had told three dreams beyond belief and proved himself a dreamer worthy to walk up Thrawn's steep, mysterious streets and linger in bazaars where the wares of the ornate galleons were sold. Then, into that incredible city he walked, through a wall so thick that the gate was a tunnel, and thereafter amidst curved and undulant ways winding deep and narrow between the heavenward towers. Lights shone through grated and balconied windows, and the sound of lutes and pipes stole timid from inner courts where marble fountains bubbled. Carter knew his way, and edged down through darker streets to the river, where at an old sea tavern he found the captains and seamen he had known in myriad other dreams. There he bought his passage to Selephiace, a great green galleon, and there he stopped for the night, after speaking gravely to the venerable cat of that inn, who blinked dozing before an enormous hearth, and dreamed of old wars, forgotten gods. In the morning, Carter boarded the galleon bound for Selephiace, and sat in the prow as the ropes were cast off, and the long sail down to the Cenarian Sea began. For many leagues, the banks were much as they were above Thrawn, with now and then a curious temple rising on the farther hills toward the right, and a drowsy village on the shore, the steep red roofs and nets spread in the sun. Mindful of his search, Carter questioned all the mariners closely about those whom they had met in the taverns of Selephiace, asking the names and ways of the strange men with long, narrow eyes, long-lobed ears, thin noses, and pointed chins who came in dark ships from the north and traded onyx for the carved jade and spun gold and little red-singing birds of Selephiace. Of these men, the sailors knew not much, save that they talked but seldom, and spread a kind of awe about them. Their land, very far away, was called Inganot, and not many people cared to go thither, because it was a cold, twilight land, and said to be close to unpleasant Lang, although high, impassable mountains towered on the side where Lang was thought to be so that none might say whether this evil plateau, with its horrible stone villages and unmentionable monastery were really there, or whether the rumor were only a fear that timid people felt in the night when those formidable barrier peaks loomed back against a rising moon. Certainly, men reached Lang from very different oceans, of other boundaries of Inganok, those sailors had no notion. Nor had they heard of the cold waste, an unknown Kadath, save from vague, unplaced report. And of the marvelous sunset city, which Carter sought, they knew nothing at all. So the traveler asked no more of far things, but bided his time until he might talk with those strange men from cold and twilight Inganok. They were the seed of such gods, 
has carved their features on Negronic. Late in the day, the galleon reached those bends of the river, which traversed the perfumed jungles of Cled. Here, Carter wished he might disembark, for in those tropic tangles sleep wondrous palaces of ivory, lone and unbroken, where once dwelt fabulous monarchs of a land whose name is forgotten. Spells of the Elder Ones keep those places unharmed and undecayed, for it is written that there may be one day need of them again, and elephant caravans have glimpsed them from afar by moonlight, though none dare approach them closely, because of the guardians to which their wholeness is due. But the ship swept on, and dusk hushed the hum of the day, and the first stars above linked answers to the early fireflies on the banks, as that jungle fell far behind, leaving only its fragrance as a memory that had been. And all through the night the galleon floated on past mysteries unseen and unsuspected. Once a lookout reported fires on the hills to the east, but the sleepy captain said they had better not be looked at too much, since it was highly uncertain just who, or what, had lit them. In the morning, the river had broadened out greatly, and Carter saw by the houses along the banks that they were close to the vast trading city of Laneth on the Cenarian Sea. Here the walls are of rugged granite, and the houses peaked fantastic with beamed and blastered gables. Men of Laneth are more like those of the waking world than any others in Dreamland, so that the city is not sought except for barter, but is prized for the solid work of its artisans. The wharves of Laneth are of oak, and there the galleon made fast while the captain traded in the taverns. Carter also went ashore, and looked curiously upon the rutted streets, where wooden ox carts lumbered, and feverish merchants cried their wares vacuously in the bazaars. The sea taverns were all close to the wharves on cobbled lanes, salt with the spray of high tides, and seemed exceedingly ancient in their low black beams, ceilings, casements, greenish bullseye panes. Ancient sailors in those taverns talked much of distant ports, and told many stories of the curious men from Twilight Inganok, but they had little to add to what the seamen of the galleon had told. Then at last, after much unloading and loading, the ship set sail once more over the sunset sea, and the high walls and gables of Laneth grew less as the last golden light of day lent them a wonder and beauty beyond any that men had given them. Two nights and two days the galleon sailed over the Cenarian Sea, sighting no land and speaking but one other vessel. The near sunset of the second day there loomed up ahead the snowy peak of Iran, with its ginkgo trees swaying on the lower slopes. And Carter knew that they were come to the land of Uthnargai and the marvelous city of Selephias. Swiftly there came into sight the glittering minarets of that fabulous town, with the untarnished marble walls with their bronze statues. Great stone bridge where Naraksa joins the sea. 
Then rose the green, gentle hills beside the town, with their groves and gardens of asphodels, and the small shrines and cottages upon them. And far in the background, the purple ridge of the Tenarians, potent, mystical, behind which lay forbidden ways into the waking world and toward other regions of dream. The harbor was full of painted galleys, some of which were from the marble cloud city of Saranian that lies in ethereal space beyond where the sea meets the sky, and some of which were from more substantial ports on the oceans of dreamland. Among these, the steersman threaded his way up to the spice-fragrant wharves, where the galleon made fast in the dusk as the city's million lights began to twinkle out over the water. As it has always been, is still the turquoise temple of Nath-Horthoth, and the eighty orchid-wreathed priests of the same who built it ten thousand years ago. Shining still is the bronze of the great gates, nor are the onyx pavements ever worn or broken, and the great bronze statues on the walls look down on merchants and camel drivers, older than fable, and yet without one gray hair in their forked beards. Carter did not at once seek out the temple, or the palace, or the citadel, but stayed by the seaward wall among traders and sailors. And when it was too late for rumors and legends, he sought out an ancient tavern he knew well, and rested with dreams of the gods on unknown Kadath, whom he sought. Next day, he searched all along the quays for some of the strange mariners of Inganach, but he was told that none were now in port, their galley not being due from the north for two full weeks. He found, however, one Thorobonian sailor who had been to Inganach and had worked in the onyx quarries of that twilight place. And this sailor said, there is certainly a desert to the north of the peopled region, which everybody seemed to fear and shun. The Thorobonian opined that this desert led around the utmost rim of impassable peaks into Lang's horrible plateau, and that this was why men feared it, though he admitted there were other vague tales of evil presences and nameless sentinels. Whether or not this could be the fabled waste where an unknown Kadat stands, he did not know. But it seemed unlikely that those presences and sentinels, if indeed they truly existed, stationed for naught. On the following day, Carter walked up the streets of the pillars to the turquoise temple and talked with the high priest, though Nath Horthoth is chiefly worshipped in Selephias. All the great ones are mentioned in diurnal prayers, and the priest was reasonably versed in their moods. Like a tall and distant Ulthar, he strongly advised against any attempt to see them declaring that they are testy and capricious, and subject to strange protection from the mindless other gods from outside, whose soul and messenger is the crawling chaos, Yarlothotep. Their jealous hiding of the marvelous sunset city showed clearly that they did not wish Carter to reach it, and it was doubtful how they would regard a guest whose object was to see them and plead before them. No man had ever found Gadoth in the past. 
and it might be just as well if none had ever found it in the future. Such rumors were told about that onyx castle of the Great Ones, and they were not by any means reassuring. Having thanked the orchid-crowned high priest, Carter left the temple and sought the bazaar of the sheep butchers, where the old chief of Selphiace cats dwelt sleek and contented. A gray and dignified being was sunning himself on the onyx pavement and extended a languid paw as his caller approached. But when Carter repeated the passwords and introductions furnished him by the old cat General Fulthar, the furry patriarch became very cordial and communicative. He told much of the secret lore known to cats in the seaward slopes of Uthnargai. Best of all, he repeated several things told him furtively by the timid waterfront cats of Selephias, the men of Inganoth, on whose dark ships no cats will go. It seems that these men have an aura not of earth about them, though that is not the reason why no cat will sail on their ships. The reason for this is that Inganoth holds shadows which no cat can endure, so that in all that cold twilight realm there is never a cheering purr or a homely mew, whether it be because of things wafted over the impassable peaks from hypothetical Lang, or because of things filtering down from the chilly desert to the north, none may say. But it remains a fact that in far land there broods a hint of outer space which cats do not like, and to which they are more sensitive than men. Therefore, they will not go on the dark ships that seek the basalt quays of Inganoth. The chief of old cats also told him where to find his friend King Chironis, who in Carter's later dreams had reigned alternately in the rose crystal palace of the seven Titolites at Selephias, in those turreted cloud castles of sky-floating Saranian. It seems that he could no more find content in those places, but had formed a mighty longing for the English cliffs and downlands of his boyhood, where in little dreaming villages England's old songs hover at evening behind lattice windows. Grey church towers peep lovely through the verdure of distant valleys, he could not go back to these things in the waking world, because his body was dead. But he had done the next best thing, and dreamed a small tract of such countryside in the region east of the city, where meadows roll gracefully up from the sea cliffs to the foot of the Tenarian Hills. There he dwelt in a grey Gothic manor house of stone, looking on the sea, and tried to think it was ancient Trevor Towers, where he was born and where thirteen generations of his forefathers had first seen light. And on the coast nearby, he had built a little Cornish fishing village with steep cobbled ways, settling therein such people as had the most English faces, and seeking ever to teach them the dear-remembered accents of old Cornwall fishers. And in a valley not far off, he had reared a great Norman abbey, whose tower he could see from his window, placing around it in the courtyard grey stones with the names of his ancestors carved thereon, and with a moss, somewhat like old England's moss. For though Curanus was a monarch in the land of dream, 
with all imagined pomps and marvels, splendors and beauties, ecstasies and delights, novelties and excitements at his command. I'd gladly have resigned forever the whole of his power and luxury and freedom for one blessed day as a simple boy in that pure and quiet England, that ancient, beloved England which had molded his being and of which he must always be immutably a part. So when Carter bade that old great chief with cats adieu, he did not seek the terraced palace of Rose Crystal, but walked out the eastern gate and across the daisied fields toward a peaked gable, upon which he glimpsed through oaks of park sloping up to sea cliffs. And in time he came to a great hedge and a gate with a little brick lodge, and when he rang the bell, there hobbled to admit him, no robed and anointed lackey of the palace, but a small, stubby old man in a smock, who spoke as best he could in the quaint tones of far Cornwall. Carter walked up the shady path between trees as near as possible to England's trace, and climbed terraces among gardens set out as in Queen Anne's time. At the door, flanked by stone cats in the old way, he was met by a whiskered butler in suitable livery, and was presently taken to the library where Curanus, Lord of Uthnorgai, in the sky round Saranian, sat pensive in a chair by the window, looking on his little seacoast village, and wishing that his old nurse would come in and scold him because he was not ready for that hateful lawn party at the Vagars, with his carriage waiting, and his mother nearly out of patience. Curanes, clad in a dressing gown of the sort, favored by London tailors in his youth, rose eagerly to meet his guest, for the sight of an Anglo-Saxon from the waking world was very dear to him, even if he was from Boston, Massachusetts, instead of from Cornwall. And for long they talked of old times, having much to say because both were old dreamers and well-versed in the wonders of incredible places. Curanes, indeed, had been out beyond the stars in the ultimate void, and was said to be the only one who had ever returned sane from such a voyage. At length, Carter brought up the subject of his quest, and asked of his host those questions he had asked of so many others. Curanes did not know where Kadath was, or the marvelous Sunset City, but he did know that the Great Ones were very dangerous creatures to seek out, and that the other gods had strange ways of protecting them from impertinent curiosity. He had learned much of the other gods in distant parts of space, especially in that region where form does not exist, and colored gases study the innermost secrets. The violet gas, Sunak, had told him terrible things about crawling chaos near Lothotep and had warned him never to approach the central void the demon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in the dark. Although it was not well to meddle with the Elder Ones, and if they persistently denied all access to the marvelous Sunset City, it were better not to seek that city. Kiranes furthermore doubted whether his guests would profit aught by coming to the city even were he to gain it. 
He himself had dreamed and yearned long years for lovely Celephiace in the land of Uthnargai, and for the freedom and color and high experience of life, devoid of its chains, conventions, stupidities. But now that he has come into that city and that land, and was the king thereof, he found the freedom and the vividness all too soon worn out, monotonous for want of linkage with anything firm in his feelings and memories. He was a king in Uthnargai, but found no meaning therein, and drooped always for the old familiar things of England, anything that had shaped his youth. All his kingdom would he give for the sound of Cornish church bells over the downs, and all the thousand minarets of Celephiace for the steep, homely roofs of the village near his home. So he told his guest that the unknown sunset city might not hold quite the content he sought, and that perhaps it had better remain a glorious and half-remembered dream. For he had visited Carter often in the old waking days, and he knew well the lovely New England slopes that had given him birth. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. <laughs>